Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My guest today says that through his life's journey and 30 years in the military, Orland, California has been his anchor. Dave Nordell was nurtured in the heart of Orland's dairy farming community in a third-generation Portuguese family. He graduated from Orland High School in 1983 and at age 19 left home to join the Air Force. He earned a bachelor's degree in nursing, specializing in emergency medicine. He retired in 2014 and now represents veterans with a focus on mental health, PTSD, and suicide prevention. Dave Nordell is author of two best-selling books, Giving Back, Life and Leadership from the Farm to the Combat Zone and Beyond, and When the Cows Lie Down, The Reason People Quit You Their Leader. His new book explores good and bad quitting, why people are quietly quitting, leaving the workforce. Dave Nordell, welcome. Nancy, thanks so much for having me back. And uh, the part that you didn't put in there was when I wrote my first book and started on this journey, you were the first person to do any type of event like this with me. And after numerous podcasts and interviews, um, uh, you got it all started. So I sure appreciate you. And 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 here again, back to my roots, you know, <laughs> back to Northern California and back to Circa, Orland, Chico area to uh, to always find the goodness. So, Well, that's nice to hear. Now, I'm going to remind listeners of the title of your newest book, When the Cows Lie Down. And that is such an odd title that I think people might like to get an explanation. What do you mean, Dave? So would sure. you read uh, the section in your book uh, where you tell us we have much to learn from animals? Sure, sure. And, you know, growing up on growing up on a dairy farm, I, I always said that everything that you need to know in life is kind of on the farm, right? There's life and life and death and struggle and, and success and hard work. And sometimes you just have to pay attention to Mother Nature because she's always there. So, yeah, let me read you a little bit here and maybe we'll get a, a better understanding of um where we want to go with the cows. So we have much to learn from animals. One area I find amazing is that if you pay attention to their tendencies and habits and reactions, you can see and use the signs to predict future events in a way that can save money, time, and sometimes lives. For example, recently I was on a fishing boat. It was a hot and humid, and the white billowy clouds of Saskatchewan Day were coming upon us. We were worried about the weather and the threat of lightning, so we motored back to the dock to pull the boat out of the water and head to the house. It was precautionary, but we had a feeling the storm would come. Then, like a jolt back to my childhood, as we turned for the boat ramp, we saw about 40 head of cattle. They were all next to a tiny tree and every one of them was lying down. The signs of danger were there, they subtly presented a key indicator for us to make the decision that would keep us out of danger and help us get out of the coming rain and away from disaster. These cows were literally signs. However, your cows are around you in your home and your work, your workspace, and sometimes they look like your followers. When I saw the cows on the ground, I knew the meaning from I knew the meaning from experience. And I laughed out loud and said, We better hurry for the house. The cows are lying down. I've seen this many times and rarely do the cows miss the forecast. If you look this up, some will say that there's nothing to validate this phenomenon, yet others swear by it. I'll add this disclaimer. Understand that I've researched the research and because of real life experience, I choose to side with the cows. It is amazing and oddly reassuring as you see the signs because it gives you the time to prepare and look around. If you pay attention, you might not get hit by lightning in a figurative or literal way. So I hope that helps the listener, Nancy, kind of understand uh, what the cows mean to me in, in both figurative and literal life. This is Orland native Dave Nordell reading from his latest book, When the Cows Lie Down. And <laughs> I'm going to ask you about the routine on a dairy farm, Davy Baby. 
Oh boy. <laughs> that's, that's great. So Davy baby comes from uh, being one of 13 first cousins and 11 out of the 13 and the age gaps were pretty, pretty high on the top end. So out of that, I was Davy baby. I don't know why I still am. Even when I run into those cousins, I'm still Davy <laughs> baby, but you know, the routine on a farm, you know, I'll never claim that, uh, that, uh, I was the guy that was out there just in front milking cows every single day. Cause I was around those people and I helped and I learned, you know, the ethics that go along with that. Um, and as you know, I left home at 19 to, to join the military, but you know, the routine on a, on a dairy farm starts very early in the morning and sometimes can go very late at night, depending on what time of year it is. And and what other things you have going on, because it's not just the dairy cows that are there. A lot of times you're growing your own hay, uh, you have fences to fix, you've got other animals that are on the farm. You know, we had chickens and we had we had pigs and there was, you know, the occasional stray goat and, and horses for for recreation or, or for work. And so there's just chores that need to be done. And they start very early in the morning because the cows have to be milked twice a day, every day, um, 365 or 66 days a year, depending on what year it is. And uh, so it's it's a labor of love, and it requires you to be um, efficient. It requires you to pay attention constantly, and it requires you to work through the mundane and the routine and make that fresh every day, so that you can not only you know provide for your family. I mean, it's it's your job, it's your profession, but you have to properly take care of the animals. And in the course of all of that, Nancy comes lessons and every time you turn the corner there's a lesson and sometimes it's a small meow on the back of a haystack with a a new brood of of uh you know a new a new batch of kittens and and you just you get to kind of witness mother nature to the old barn owl that hangs around well to i wanted to get back to your, said, sure, to your routine sure. for example i happen to like cream in my coffee so oh. <laughs> I love so it. how did you put cream in your coffee? I love it. That was such a joy. And you know, as a young kid, drinking coffee was kind of a kind of a sneaky thing. And the majority of the time when we got to drink coffee was out in the barn. And so hey, you'd bring the cows in in the morning, and there was a couple things that that had to happen. One was turn the radio on. The radio was always on this same radio station. So there's always early 1960s music that reminds me of milking cows. And then there was coffee. And if you had cream in your coffee, you would get the first batch of cows in, get them all cleaned up and ready to milk. And then you take your coffee cup over and literally milk the milk the cow into your coffee cup and then add your coffee. So it doesn't get any fresher than that. If you want to talk about fresh cream, that's the best. So you would squirt the cream in your coffee cup from directly from the cow. Yes. Well, now, Dave, your book is full of all kinds of advice. And people might wonder, well, uh, how come this guy's, uh, should I trust his advice? I mean, did he have success? This is a word that comes up often in your book, the word success. So I might mention that you were awarded a bronze star, Legion of Merit. So you were successful in your military career. And in fact, the sub subtitle, if I want to call it that, of your newest book, Building and Maintaining a Max Fab Culture of Success. So if if we're going to take your word for your, this advice, then we want to take it from somebody who was successful at what he did. And, and the subtitle is the expression Max Fab. And I was rather amused at that because when people ask me, well, how are you doing? My typical response, not even thinking about it, is fantastic. How are you doing? Fantastic. And so I heard what you replied when people would ask you that. And what did you say, Dave? Well, I said maximum fabulous. Maximum fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> which which is max fab. It makes people giggle. And, you know, I've had military people say, gosh, I'd never, never thought I'd hear, you know, command chief or an E-9 in the United States military use that term. <laughs> Uh, that's really wrapped around what I've identified as the highest of the hierarchy of attitude. And it doesn't mean that we're always max fab and it doesn't mean that every day we're going to get to max fab, but it is a, but it is a benchmark and it's a place to work towards even when you're having adversity. And I've found that, that keeping that max fab attitude as I was leading people and most specifically leading people in combat and through trauma medicine and taking care of our brothers and sisters, um, they were wounded on the battlefield, wounded or injured on the battlefield, uh, uh, in a in a pretty high volume in a pretty high volume environment. That if you maintain a proper attitude uh, in any institution, 
you can overcome a lot of things, but you also get emotionally, physically, and and spiritually healthy people um, that can not only get through the adverse moments, but they they their longevity is better and they're just healthier people, even if they, you know, they move on from from what they're doing. So the cry was Max Fab. So when people would ask me in the morning, Chief, how are you doing? I'd say Maximum Fabulous. And a lot, a lot of people would giggle just like you did and say, really, what is that? And the explanation was it's an attitude, it's an expect, it's an expected attitude. Uh, you just mentioned that they would say, hey, chief. So you might tell people what your rank was. Right. So I was I was a chief master sergeant in the Air Force, and, and I retired as a command chief, which is a, a command billet. And only 1% of the entire enlisted force of any of the services, Marines, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, uh, Space Force now, are um, allowed by Congress to serve in the rank of chief or E-9 or sergeant major in the Army. And so you're the leader of the of the the troops, and you're the main advisor to the to the senior officers that are you know directing operations on uh, on a variety of things. I think another indication that you were trusted that you ultimately became a senior enlisted leader overseeing our nation's nuclear missile forces. Wow. Yeah, three years of that. Um, so if you think about nuclear and you think about medicine, which were the two things that I probably was in the most, you talk about regulated and disciplined and needing, uh, and needing, you know, the right people doing the right thing all of the time, uh, is when you're taking care of people who are taking care of nuclear weapons. It was awesome. Yeah. Great responsibility. And yes, along, along the lines, you make some mistakes and you get a lot of, um, leadership training. You get to learn a lot of things. But the people are just magnificent. And really, when you can get people all moving in the right direction, things get a lot easier. And so, and that all, that a lot of that wraps around, a lot of that wraps around Max Fab. So, let me remind people who you are, Dave. David Nordell is author of When the Cows Lie Down The Reason People Quit You, Their Leader. And you put the word leader in quotation marks because you make the point that you can't really be a leader unless your followers are willing to follow you. And you say you're going to tell us the reason people quit. And that has come up particularly in the last few years. People are quietly quitting. They're leaving the workforce. And why are they quitting, Dave? Well, there's some phenomenons that are out there. Let me give you, let me bore you with some statistics real quick. Most people start leading when they're 30. They start leading people that lead people when they're 39. And they get some form of training, leadership training when they're 42 years old, on average in our country. So there's a huge gap there in deliberate development of leaders. So some leaders are just not developed at a level that when they are, when they're responsible for people that they can actually um, executed a level with the right mentorship um, to have healthy environments. So that's kind of number one. But quiet quitting is is a few things. One is is you have to be very careful as a leader with your values and how you articulate your values and then how you demonstrate them. And values conflict or values misalignment is a huge reason why people will quietly quit. And quiet quitters don't necessarily leave organizations. They just come to work and give you a C minus every day. They just do the bare minimums to stay employed, but they're not invested in, in advancing uh, the company or the, the culture or anything because they don't identify with it. And usually that's because poor cultures and poor values alignment is usually set in motion by the leader. And so unfortunately, um, uh, people quietly quit. And so you have organizations full of disengaged employees because the leader has set forth a culture that's unpalatable to them, either based on their own ethics or morals or, or foundation. Well, I think most people would think quitting, that's bad, because we have that expression, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, and, and so we're told not to quit. So it, the implication is that quitting is bad. So is it is quitting good or bad, Dave? Well, quitting's good, bad, and then there's the quitting when you don't have a choice. So, I mean, to answer your question, we've all been told quitting is bad. Got to run through the finish line, start what you finish, like those type of things that you've said. And there's there's value in that. I mean, you shouldn't just, you know, most people when they quit, 
like on the spot quit. That's usually driven by emotion. You just want to get rid of the whatever's causing the negative emotion. So you quit and you walk away from it and it solves a, it's a short-term solution to, to a, probably a missed growth opportunity. So you got to challenge yourself a little bit. But there's also good quitting. And, you know, I just had an example the other day. Ironically, I'm glad you asked the question. I would, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a lady on a podcast and she's talking about how she had a job where she was misaligned and it was time for her to go. And when she left the job, she didn't have a really good plan. So she had a couple of weeks where uh, she was at home. And after a couple of weeks at home, her 11 year old daughter walked up to her and said, you know, mom, I know you don't have a job and you feel bad about that. She said, but you're yelling at me less and I like you much better. <laughs> and so I don't think that story is that unusual, actually. No, I find it totally credible. And I find just in my own past, people who quit, I admired the fact that they would quit something even if they didn't have a new job because it was the right thing to do. So to me, it was a sign of bravery, not a sign of weakness. Right. I, and I, and I totally agree. And, you know, usually most people want to do right. And, and all people I think are good. I mean, there's probably some small fraction of people that just aren't good, but for the most part, humans are good. They want to do right. And I think when you get to the point where, where you, you physically and emotionally are offset by whatever you're doing and quitting becomes a, a way to manage that, then there's a right way to quit. And okay. Always, okay. How how do you do that? How can you be a? There's this word success again, Dave. Right. How can you be a successful quitter? Right. Uh, so number one is, is if you're quitting an institution or you're quitting your leader, um, always quit them like you need your job back in two weeks. So <laughs> so, so don't so don't so don't do it with scorched earth. I've heard stories about that. Sure. <laughs> sure. And keep your dignity. When you when you leave, make people you know do the best you can to have people understand why you're making the decision that you're making. Uh, be an adult about it, and and really articulate how you're feeling and and those type of things. Not everybody's an empath, but everybody has the ability to be empathetic. And if you articulate why you're leaving something or why you're quitting or why you've even quiet quit. If you, if you articulate, if somebody says to you, boy, you were doing so well and now you're just kind of mediocre. If you can articulate in a way how you feel based on your, your surroundings, your environment, maybe somebody through empathy can even change that environment. You can improve your position and, and you don't have to quit. But if you're leaving, please, you know, please just don't, don't take your ball and go home. Explain to people why you're doing that. Because I think that that's the that's the right way to do it, and and quitting might be the right right answer, but uh, there's a right way to quit. My guest is Orland native Dave Nardell, and his newest book is "When the Cows Lie Down." We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, David Nardell, whose latest book is When the Cows Lie Down. Well, I thought about the fact when I'd known people who had quit without a job in, lined up, and, and I thought, well, that's fearless, because you make the point that uh, there are a couple of things that keep us from doing what we need to do from being who we want to be or getting where we want to go. 
And what are those two barriers, Dave? Well, so there's two things. There's two things that drive us uh, to make decisions almost daily, and we don't even think about it because sometimes it's just it's just uh, um, ambiguous. Is fear and pain, and I'll give you the example. Nancy says to Dave, "Hey, let's go on a hike today, and we're going to go to uh, we're going to go out and we're going to climb up to the top of the dam at Orville." And I go, well, we've got it. That's that's a 35-minute drive. And it's 80 degrees already. And by the time we get there, it's going to be 90. And don't you know that, you know, that's a big steep incline. And the last time I was out there, I didn't take enough water. And by the time I've 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 demonstrated all the fear and all the pain that I have about this thing, we've decided not to go. And then the next day somebody goes, What a gorgeous day it was at Orville when we climbed to the top of the dam. And boy, when we got up there, we saw this, 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 and this. Well, we stunt ourselves. Right. And this is a, you know, there's a thing called Johari's window. And in Johari's window, one of the four quadrants of Johari's window is an unknown, unknown space. And that is a space where we grow. And in there is a lot of fear and potential pain. But those are the growing things. And that's, you know, it goes back to when I was talking about when the fear and pain, uh, I, we feel that on our shoulders and we, we imagine these things, these poor outcomes, it's easier to quit. And actually, the right answer might be, to stay the course and grow because the planting of the seed, the busting of the soil, the watering, you know, just, just for the little, the little seedling to break through the ground, all takes energy and effort. It doesn't, it doesn't turn into the mighty oak or the, you know, the corn stalk overnight. And so when you're planted, it may feel uncomfortable and it doesn't feel natural and it might be a little cold and, and, you know, I'm using these figuratively, but uh, if you stay the course, it works. So you have to, you know, to to grow. Even it doesn't matter what age you're at. It, to grow and to continue to to um, to better yourself and to to build bigger bigger foundations and more experience, you have to put yourself into a fear and pain space, uh, because where you're comfortable is easy. My guest is Dave Nordell, and he grew up on a dairy farm, and has given the title of his new book. When the Cows Lie Down, The Reason People Quit You, Their Leader. I think also um, one reason people decide to quit after COVID shut things down, it gave people a chance to think, am I really doing what I want to be doing with my life? And people started asking themselves, I, this is just my own view of it, but started to say, well, what's important to me? And you raise this question in your book that you ask yourself, what's important to me? And you say, make sure you really know, because you only have so much time and energy. And that um, that was a hard lesson for me to learn, uh, that we don't have unlimited time. And you say kind of early in your book, I could have spent more time with my wife, with my kids. And I, uh, I don't have children, but this same thing occurred to me when my husband died. I thought, oh, my gosh, where were my sense of values? Why didn't I go by what was important to me? Because he was, and yet I didn't spend the time I should have spent with him, I think now. So, so uh, what, what else do you have to suggest for people as far as figuring that out? So as I write about in the first book, and I hedge on it in the second book, and I never really come off it when I speak uh, to people, to young leaders and, and leaders that want to develop. Uh, we all have a speed limit, Nancy, and we set our own speed limit. And sometimes that's based on priorities. And quite often we focus on the immediate priority. And sometimes that's as simple as I'm running late. And the only reason that you're running late to work is because you normally stop for 10 minutes to get a cup of coffee. So really, you're not late. You just can't have your coffee. So what if you forego the coffee? Now you're 10 minutes early. And what can you do with those 10 minutes besides stopping for your coffee? And so when you, when you look at that, it's a speed limit. Well, a lot of times we need to slow down to go faster. You know, living in Montana now is a great example. If people tell me I've been to Montana and they say, you know, I drove from here to here and it's gorgeous and blah, blah, blah. And I said, really? Okay, well, where did you stay and what did you do? And if that's not really robust, then I know that they didn't fully experience Montana because where I experience Montana is walking through the fields when I'm doing the, you know, the outdoor stuff that I enjoy doing. Because even a flat wheat field that's just been harvested that looks like nothing's in it, 
has thousands of things going on in it. No, this brings up uh, what you're saying now. Reminds of your chapter that you entitle "My Three Hour Cappuccino," right. and. Oh, boy, did, that lesson was for me, too, because I used to think if somebody says, well, let's sit down in this outdoor cafe and have a cup of coffee. And my reaction was, oh, I'm not in the mood for a cup of coffee. That's not the point. And I loved your chapter, When You and Some Buddies Go to Hungary. And right. what happened there? <laughs> Maybe yeah. I tell you what, why don't you just uh, read uh, what you said, what you wrote in that chapter sure. called My Three-Hour Cappuccino? Sure. Sure, I'll do that. Um, Nancy, and I'm not, I really am not trying to flatter you, but when I wrote this chapter, I actually thought about you because the oh. first time that we did this interview, you were in you were in, uh, uh, in France. And so I understand that speed limit. So yeah, let me read it. Let me read it here for you. I said, let's have some finger food of the local variety. And out came the meats and cheeses and the simple foods that are incredibly tasty and indigenous to this part of Hungary. It was could a big hit. Could I just to mention that uh, sure. what your buddies had other plans before you oh. suggested this cup of coffee? Oh, and what did they think they wanted to do? Absolutely. Well, they you know they wanted to you know take the boat ride and do the traditional tourist stuff. You know, the go. Let's do. We're we're here for this amount of time. Let's do ten things really fast. Like go to a museum and do the All things that it. tourists go. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. And uh, and so I talked him into doing this because I was probably a little more seasoned traveler at the time. And uh, and so um, uh, the food was a big hit. And I looked at the guys and said, you never would have experienced this. You never would have experienced this at a museum or on a tour bus. Uh, their beers quickly disappeared and we started on a second. I watched my buddies as they visibly relaxed and that pressure to be moving and on the go dissolved away. They commented on a new smell. It was a rich scent of food, and unable to pinpoint this somehow familiar yet unfamiliar smell, we found a way to ask the wait staff what it was. We learned it was the local bread being made. You can guess what happened next. We wanted bread. Staff bought us bread, brought us bread at the same place uh, where we uh, uh, that was that was made at the same place that we had smelled it. It was fresh, and so was the butter. I soon heard comments from my buddies like, "This is the best, and what an awesome place." This part of Hungary had been had been occupied by the Russian military during the Cold War, and the, the people reflect that in their looks. They're gorgeous people with dark skin and light eyes. They move around by walking or biking, and they're generally fit. This was not lost on my buddies, my buddies either. Their approval of our choice uh, to experience all of this by slowing down and watching and smelling and feeling was evident. What I saw was people truly relaxing. They were now in a state that was healthy, as the pressure to perform, move, or gather up all they could in a minimum amount of time was gone. And all they had to do was enjoy a three-hour cup of cappuccino. This is Orland native Dave Nardell reading from his new book, When the Cows Lie Down. And when you even <laughs> mentioned cappuccino, some people would say, well, like your buddies, uh, well, you want a cappuccino? I, we don't even know what that is. And right. so they got to sit down, and um, and you mentioned, you say, uh, I see why some cultures have less stress and more happiness. And I think that's really the key to the Mediterranean diet. We're always looking at what they eat. Oh, the Mediterranean diet's healthy because all these countries around the Mediterranean eat these kinds of foods. But I think it's what you just said, wrote in your book. They have less stress and more happiness because they sit down. It's how they eat with friends. Like this scene, I just could see this scene you were describing with you and your buddies sitting down and smelling the smells and drinking the cappuccino. And it was that slowing down and giving themselves that, I guess, maybe privilege. Right. Because I think in a lot of our ways of thinking that slow days are lost days. And you said, no, slow days are not lost days. That's correct. That's correct. We often, and boy, I'll tell you, I, it's good that I write these words because sometimes I have to hold myself to them. Because <laughs> because when, when, you're, when you're doing, when you're giving back and you're trying to do this kind of work, some days you go, boy, did I get enough done today? You know, and then you evaluate, you kind of give yourself a report card every day. 
And, and I always tell myself, I, I can't, you know, I don't have a marquee moment for today. And it seemed a little slow. Maybe I could have gotten more done, but it wasn't a lost day um, because you're participating. And sometimes the day needs to be focused on keeping your batteries charged and keeping your, your mental and healthy physical self in a state that when you do have days that are a little more dynamic, you handle those with, uh, with a plum. So it's, um, it's a it's a unique phenomenon and people will say well that's easier said than done dave because i do this 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 and this and and i challenge anybody to tell me what they do for a living that's that is unique to only themselves and there's people that have figured this out and most people that have figured it out and how to have longevity have figured out how to slow down to go faster well i used to be a speedy american myself and now my favorite expression is the way the Italians view doing nothing. They say it's dolce, it's sweet. You're not doing nothing because you're a goof off. You're doing nothing because it's sweet. And their expression is dolce far niente. And so sometimes when people ask me what I'm doing or what I'm going to do, dolce far niente, sweet doing nothing. Right, right. And, and, and you should, what? It, you remember when I talked talk about Max Fab being the hierarchy of mm -hmm, attitude, mm -hmm. which you just described as the as the highest of the hierarchy of self respect. Yes, yes. And if you and if you have that level of self respect, then everything else gets a lot easier. For example, Dave, you say you quit your watch, and <laughs> how how can you do that, Dave? Um. And you because, say you're proud of it. You say you're proud oh, of it. Oh, I love it. I still don't. <laughs> now, now I will tell you, I've got my cell phone. I have to glance at the time because I need to be places on time. But think about being in the being a nurse, right? You're you're married to the watch because you got to do your vital signs, and the vital signs are all done with the second hand, right? And so you're married to the watch. But I watched people, especially as I started to get into executive leadership, and I watched people that object around their wrist. I watched them be almost led around by it figuratively and literally led around by it almost like a dog on a leash because whatever it said changed their mood, changed their attitude, changed their speed limit, changed their heart rate, changed their blood pressure. It changed everything. And so I said, with well, the first opportunity that I get, I'm taking that off. I'm not, I'm not wearing that, that thing on my wrist. I don't want something that, that I feel like I need to pick my arm up and look at to reground myself. I can do that in a lot of other ways that are healthier. So yeah, so I, I gave up the watch. <laughs> Just said, you're out of here. Well, you gave a label also to something that I've noticed as an example here in the Valley. It gets so hot. In August, it gets really, really hot. People start uh, worrying about the heat, say, in, in April or May. And so they suffer so much longer because they're anticipating those high temperatures. They're anticipating suffering. And you say uh, you have this expression, anticipatory response. So what is that? <laughs> right. And, so and how do you cope with it? Well, first of all, you got to live in the moment when the moment's good and you can't start dwelling. This is, this is about, this is about what we tell ourselves we believe. And so if I tell myself I'm going to be cold, then I will be cold. I'll tell it's a great time to have this conversation because right now fall is really starting to become fall in Montana. And you know where people's minds are? in January, 20 below. Exactly. And I'm, like, and I'm like, this is my favorite time of year. I'm going to go buy a pumpkin and I'm going to put it on my porch because I'm ready to, to bring in fall because I like it and I'm going to embrace it. And I actually just did a small video for my, for my website about, uh, about this, uh, this morning about recharging, embracing them all. So they start anticipating the dreaded weather way in advance of when the weather is actually here. Absolutely. Absolutely. You you want to cause major anxiety in Montana, just tell somebody, well, the snow should be flying in 100 days and people, you just, their whole body language and everything changes. So, yeah, it's interesting. And it's not that we hate winter. It's, you know, it's, it's, we embrace all of our seasons here. It's just that, uh, you know, we, we are always, we're always looking for past the next thing and we don't even sit down with it. It's a three hour cup of cappuccino. You know, it's a gorgeous day today. It's in the high 70s today. 
And when I'm done, I'm going to go out. It's got to, we've had a little bit of a rain, a little bit of rain today. And when I'm done, I'm going out in it. Now, most people would say, well, it's a little cool because it's been in the 90s or 100s and, and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to throw on an extra shirt or whatever. So it's something over the top. I'm going to go out in it because it's change and I get to and I get to experience it because it's here today. So I'll just do that today and I'll deal with 20 below uh, when it comes. After a break, I'll continue my conversation with Orland native David Nardell, author of When the Cows Lie Down, The Reason People Quit You, Their Leader. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Dave Nardell, who was born in Orland, and his newest book is When the Cows Lie Down. And one of the things you say in your book is, and it sounds like what I teach my yoga students, I've taught yoga for so many years, listen to what your body tells you. And I think even before that, it wouldn't occur to a lot of people that their body has anything to tell them. So why listen to your body? What can it tell me? So Dave, what can your body tell you? If I say to somebody, well, so the most stressful day of the week, Nancy, is what day? What day do you think the most stressful day of the week is? Monday. Everybody says that. It's actually Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I got it. And, and so why on Sunday... Do you start getting antsy in your chair? You can't enjoy the show that's on television or you, you know, you're, you know, I don't want to do that because it's late on Sunday or because you're already anticipating Monday, which is a whole different conversation about having the right environment to work in. Because if you do, then you don't worry about Mondays. But Sunday is the most stressful day. I just recall when I was a college student that Monday night was when I was at my lowest <laughs> for that very reason you just said. Right. And it didn't dawn on me till now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And so because you're anticipating something that you don't even know um, is out there, but your body, think about how your body, um, your mood, right? Even almost mild depression, uh, your heart rate, your blood pressure. Um, you know, people say, oh, I just, I feel sick to my stomach. Well, you better listen, because if you're sick to your stomach, you have to say, why? Is it temporary? All right? Is this just a fleeting thing that will never happen again, or it only happens once every six months? Or am I sick to my stomach every night at four o'clock until Friday evening, and then I feel great on Friday night and Saturday night? There's a something there. And, and you react physiologically to stressors a lot sooner than you do in other ways, even, even emotionally because it's that low level home. Uh, this is why, you know, this is why people go, gosh, you know, I retired and I'm off my blood pressure medicine. Hmm. There's something to that, right? Well, and then you have a suggestion that, again, it echoes what I do for my yoga students, what I tell we deep, take deep breaths. And that's something that you recommend because if people are so accustomed, they've whole lived their life uh, doing something and not stopping to take a deep breath. So you that's something you that somebody can do. That's practical advice, I think, don't you? Right. And that's a figurative breath and a literal breath, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. because sometimes when we're going really fast, if we just took a figurative breath, it would slow us down enough to get us at the right speed limit. But that, but that literal breath, the one you're talking about, the yoga breath, that deep breathing, think about all the things that are going on there. 
you're making sure that all of your cells are fully oxygenated, right? You're giving your body the food that it needs to be aware to include your brain. You're actually consciously working on your physiology. And that's a that's something that we don't do. I mean, we don't think about the physiological things that we work on based on responses, thirst and hunger. And we don't think about the other things about your oxygenation level and your exercise level and stretching your muscles and the, the, all the things that need that your body actually needs to stay um, to stay fully healthy, the, the total the total of, of health. So taking a deep breath is a very basic core thing. And it's the beginnings of meditation, right? Yes. And we know and, and we know now that meditation so I'm going to say meditation. People that are listening to this are going to go, oh, my goodness, he's telling me to meditate. And I think it's crazy. But, do you know, things like having a coloring book on your desk and coloring like for five minutes mm -hmm. is yeah. just as healthy as sitting with your legs crossed on a floor with your eyes closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a friend who says she can't sit and meditate, but she can walk. She can take walks. And that's yes. the way of doing it. And you uh, in your book, you say, quit doing and start thinking. And so that brought to mind the expression I've heard, don't just do something, stand there. Yes. <laughs> and that's kind of what you're saying. Quit doing and take a deep breath. And so uh, that's really uh, advice about productivity. Oh, oh, it's huge. I mean, even even, you know, for your for your listeners, we had a little bit of a fiasco with the microphone before we started. And right in the middle of that, you guys couldn't see me, but right in the middle of that, I put my head down and I took a deep breath and then we started all over again because I reset myself. Now, you would say that was wasting time because we didn't get the microphone fixed so quicker. I would say that we got the microphone fixed quicker because I put my head down for you know millisecond and took a deep breath. So yeah, that stuff is, that stuff's um, uh, hugely, hugely important and, uh, and it's okay. It's it's not it's not a deficit. It's not a deficit to take a pause. It's dolce. Uh, it's sweet. It is it is <laughs> sweet. It, it 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 absolutely is. And, and I mentioned that because I haven't mentioned all the countries you've been in the world. Oh my goodness, right. you have lived in so many different countries that yeah. you have a broader view of humanity, I suspect, Dave, than those of us who are, are limited in in our exposure to other cultures. Right. I I tell people I I've spent so much time cross-legged on handmade carpets in the Middle East, listening to people tell me about their culture and their religion and their their journeys and and their history. That after a while, it makes not only does it make you feel small, but you feel so privileged to to get that extra that extra um, uh, education. And it's not sitting in a classroom education. It's an education that people are privileged to do that. And so then, so there's Europe in there, and there's Asia in there, and there's you know we loved our time in Japan and the things that we learned, and uh, and like I said, Middle Eastern time, and 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 even North America and South America time, and and so you you when you when you gather all of this up, I look at it as a gift. It doesn't make me any better than anybody else, but it but it sure drives me to points of empathy a lot quicker. And it sure slows me down and it sure makes, I, I have worked really, really hard and I think I've gotten pretty good at it, uh, but not perfect, but pretty doggone good at it. Of when I want to jump to assumptions, I stop because I know whatever I'm thinking is wrong. And then I have to go find out because I, because I've had the opportunity to break down language barriers and go find out and really get uncomfortable in places and, and talk to people about who they are and why they're that way. Well, you know, some other advice that I really latched on to, because I will, sometimes people wonder why I'm wearing some bright color, because it's a celebration of something. I'll use any excuse to celebrate. And the fact that you mentioned you've lived in all these different cultures, you, I can always find something to celebrate. And so I, I liked your advice there. You say celebrate. <laughs> So a lot of these chapters in here are, are predicated off of failure, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, you, you, you write because you've failed or you could have done better or you worked so hard on something that you've, you've come close to mastering it. And every organization that I've led, well, I'll say in the, in the early years when I led organizations, I didn't see any value in celebrating. 
And the story kind of goes like this. I'm working in a medical facility. I'm a senior leader. We're doing, we're in a, in a high volume patient care environment. And the senior nurse says to me, hey, go grab your stuff because we're going to go give people ice cream. And I said, why are we giving people ice cream? And she says, well, because, and we had hit some milestones. She goes, we hit some milestones. We're going to, I've got a cart coming and we're going to go pass out ice cream. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. They need to work on, you know, paraphrasing, you know, they need to start working on this next set of milestones. We don't have time for ice cream. We're doing, you know, we're seeing patients. And she goes, you don't understand the value of ice cream. <laughs> And so off we went, I went and did my ice cream thing. And we were about halfway through it. And she looked at me and I said, I get it. I get it. But what I realized was that wasn't something that came natural to me to have success and to celebrate or just to be happy about where you're at and celebrate. And so one of two things, I try really hard to do that. And I'm a fun, I'm a fun person. I like to have fun. But I always surround myself as soon as I find somebody that's always the person that wants to do balloons for somebody's birthday or wants to do those those little things and make sure people have cards. Boy, I latch onto those people and I say, hey, I'm really bad at this. Can you make sure I'm good at it? And and then I end up having fun, too. So celebrating is um, is a couple of things. One thing when you're celebrating something, you're usually celebrating a moment in time or a success. And that's reflective, right? Which slows you down. And when you're celebrating, you're slowing down or you're almost coming to a complete stop with all of the other things that we talked about with the fear and the pain and the anxiety and the other stuff in your life. And so it is really a break. Celebration's a break, not any different than a weekend or a holiday or, or a vacation. Well, you know, this is why I'm often glad I've lived as long as I have because the rest of my life, I was so serious. And now I realize the importance of what you were just saying to celebrate. One yeah. other thought that I want to leave listeners with is you say, for example, in your relationships with your spouse or your parent or your friend, to visualize what you want. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that, it's magic. I think that comes with a little bit of age too. Because, because when you're younger, you say what you want. And you tell people what you want, and then you set forth some plan to get what you want. But you don't even know what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I found that to be true. Well, thank you again for writing this book, Dave. It has a lot of uh, important information in it. You write it for people who, have, if you're a leader, but I think just the average person, you have such practical advice. So thank you for writing this book, Dave. I, uh, it's my pleasure, I, and I hope it accomplishes what you just described, so thank you. My guest has been Orland native Dave Nordell. He spent 30 years in the military, and he's learned a lot through life's journey. And his most recent book is When the Cows Lie Down, The Reason People Quit You, Their Leader. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Nancy. And next, we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. I could have bought a Porsche. As far as the undignified collapse into male menopause goes, living with two cats is almost noble. Sharing my soul space with retired goddesses, asking them to relocate heaven and to offer their blessings on my fear-soaked bones before time reclaims me like lost luggage. Celebrating their company as if every day were a ritual of prayers and holy feasts. Mimicking Hercules, cleaning litter boxes as if they were stables of a great herd, understanding that janitorial duties are a calling and a humbling reward. Asking them to consecrate these stanzas, guarding them against the excesses of ego and the sins of inept grammar. Teaching me to lessen my Baroque appetites, not choosing women half my age, never drinking alone, eating less, and tasting more. No flashy car to rev my dusty engine, no shiny chains worn like a glamorous noose, just the rumble of soothing purrs and the jungle songs of wild animals, happy to tame a man allergic in his earlier years to common sense. And this is Robert Chancy. The Turnaround, 1976. Right between spring and summer, my mother tried to take us to a friend's vacant apartment, 45 minutes away. My father sipped his iced bourbon as she guided us out the front door to the Buick, 
She'd told him to stop drinking or we would leave. You'll never last, he called from the porch. You won't make it through the night. The Iowa cornfields flicked by, daylight fading. Planes of navy blue bench seats stretched from one side of the back seat to the other. I rubbed the smooth brass corners of my hard little suitcase. I want to go home, I said. I was six. Shut up, said my sister. She was nine. We'll get there in time for Starsky and Hutch, said my mother. I saw Starsky sliding across the shiny hood of their grand Torino. The apartment door was at the top of a staircase. I scanned each room, closets too, and finally found the television, a nine-inch cube on a corner end table, rabbit ears in a crooked V. I twisted the knob. It won't come on. It's not plugged in, idiot, said my sister. My mother tried, then crouched beside me and touched my shoulder. Can you stay tonight, just tonight? But it's already started, I said, over and over and over and over and over and over. Jesus Christ, said my sister. We returned to the Buick, fireflies blinking over the lawn. I lay in the front seat this time, my head in my mother's lap. She stroked my hair, her eyes on the road. Anna B. Moore. Forbidden Fruit. Eye an apple. Imagine that pie. Finger a fig. Then linger near lemons. Pluck a plum. Palm a pomegranate. Will full with abandon. Without permission. Peruse. Persuade, pursue a persimmon. Klept a kiwi. Pithily pocket a kumquat. Dare approach an apricot? Hanging ripe and luscious within my reach. Dropped, decomposed along the street. Is it private property or is it not? Go on and pick them. Watch them rot. Partake invites the snake in my ear. All's ephemeral. Quick, grab what's here. Jerry Mahood. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.